everybody. Welcome to 2ZQ Hot Takes, where we discuss issues both big and small. I am your host, the very handsome Tim Kirk, and this time I'll be talking about eavesdropping. Eavesdropping started in Hampton Court with King Henry VIII. It is now something completely different. Or maybe it isn't. There's a long history to this, and it's currently being used around the world. From Wikipedia, eavesdropping is the act of secretly or stealthily listening to the private conversation or communications of others without their consent in order to gather information. The verb eavesdrop is a back formation from the noun eavesdropper, a person who eavesdrops, which was formed from the related noun eavesdrop, the dripping of water from the eaves of a house, the ground on which such water falls. An eavesdropper was someone who would hang from the eave of a building so as to hear what is said within. The PBS documentaries Inside the Court of Henry VIII and Secrets of Henry VIII's Palace included segments that displayed and discussed eavesdrops, carved wooden figures Henry VIII had built into the eaves overhanging edges of the beams in the ceiling of a Hampton Court to discourage unwanted gossip or dissension from the king's wishes and rule to foment paranoia and fear and demonstrate that everything said there was being overheard. Literally, that the walls had ears. In modern times, eavesdropping vectors include telephone lines, cellular networks, email, and other methods of private instant messaging. VoIP communication software is also vulnerable to electronic eavesdropping via infections such as Trojans. Network eavesdropping is a network layer attack that focuses on capturing small packets from the network transmitted by other computers and reading the data content in search of any type of information. This type of network attack is generally one of the most effective as a lack of encryption services are used. It is also linked to the collection of metadata. So that's the interesting story about what eavesdropping is and what it was. But it all took place originally at Hampton Court Palace. And the Hampton Court Palace was a palace owned by King Henry VIII. It was originally built for Cardinal Thomas Wolsey, the chief minister of King Henry VIII. In 1529, as Wolsey fell from favor, the cardinal gave the palace to the king to check his disgrace. The palace went on to become one of Henry's most favored residences. Soon after acquiring the property, he arranged for it to be enlarged so that it might more easily accommodate his sizable retinue of courtiers. Along with St. James Palace, it is one of only two surviving palaces out of the many the king owned. The palace is currently in the possession of Queen Elizabeth II and the crown. Now, the History Channel has a much more graphic depiction of Hampton Court, and it says, In July of 1535, King Henry VIII and his court of over 700 people embarked on an epic official tour. Over the next four months, the massive entourage 
would visit around 30 different royal palaces, aristocratic residences, and religious institutions. While these stops were important PR events for the king, designed to spark loyalty in the subjects, royal households had another reason entirely for their constant movement. They weren't just exercising their tremendous wealth. They actually needed to escape the disgusting messes large royal parties produced. Palaces, like Henry's Hampton Court, had to be constantly evacuated so they could be cleaned of the accumulated mounds of human waste. Livestock and farmland also needed time to recover after supplying food for so many people. Once the tour was over, Henry and a swelling court of over 1,000 would keep moving for the rest of the year, traveling frequently between the king's 60 residences in a vain attempt to live in hygienic surroundings. Ew. Within days of a royal party settling in one palace or another, a stink would set in from poorly discarded food, animal waste, vermin from or attracted to unwashed bodies, and human waste, which accrued in underground chambers until it could be removed. <laughs> the hallways would become so caked with grime and soot from constant fires that they were fairly black. The very crush of court members was so dense that it made a thorough house cleaning impossible and futile. Though cleanliness standards were subpar throughout the medieval Renaissance and Regency eras, royal courts were typically dirtier than the average small cabin or home. I never knew that. Some of the most storied reigns in history, like that of Catherine the Great, took place against a backdrop of horrifying smells, overcrowded quarters, overflowing chamber pots, and lice-filled furniture, while paintings of Louis XIV's opulent court at Versailles show royals clad in gorgeously embroidered garments, viewers today are missing one of the main effects of their finery, the odor of hundreds of garments that have never been washed, all in one unventilated room. And Charles II of England let his flea-bitten spaniels lie in his bedchamber, where they rendered the room very offensive and indeed made the whole court nasty and stinking according to a 17th century writer. Oh my goodness. <laughs> but without a doubt, the most pressing health concern was caused by the dearth of waste disposal options in an era before reliable plumbing. Feces and urine were everywhere. I can't believe I'm actually saying this on a podcast. Eleanor Herman, author of The Royal Art of Poison, says of royal palaces, some courtiers didn't bother to look for a chamber pot, but just dropped their britches and did their business, all of their business, in the staircase, the hallway, or the fireplace. A 1675 report offered this assessment of the Louvre Palace in Paris. On the grand staircases and behind the doors and almost everywhere one sees there was a mass of excrement. One smells a thousand unbearable stenches caused by calls of nature, which everyone goes to do there every day. Oh my God. According to historian Alison Weir, author of Henry VIII, The King and His Court, the fastidious Henry VIII waged a constant battle against the dirt, dust, and smells that were unavoidable when so many people lived in one establishment, which was fairly unusual for the time. The king slept on a bed surrounded by furs to keep small creatures and vermin away, and visitors were warned not to wipe or rub their hands upon non-aris tapestries, 
of the kings, whereby they might be hearted. Many of the rules laid down by the king indicate that his battle against the advancing grime was a losing one. To keep servants and courtiers from urinating on garden walls, Henry had large red X's painted in problem spots. But instead of deterring men from relieving themselves, it just gave them something to aim for. Calls for people not to dump dirty dishes in the hallways or on the king's bed seemed to fall on deaf ears. Remember, the original subject is about listening in on private conversations. Amazingly, Henry was even forced to decree that cooks in the royal kitchen were forbidden to work naked or in garments of such vileness as they do now, nor lie in the nights and days in the kitchen or ground by the fireside. To combat the problem, clerks of the kitchen were instructed to purchase honest and wholesome garments for the staff. While the king had a relatively sophisticated lavatory system for himself, other waste measures intended as hygienic seem disgusting today. Servants were encouraged to pee in vats so that their urine could be used for cleaning. As actual cleanliness was often unachievable, the royal court resorted to masking the offending odors. Once Henry and his court moved on to the next royal residence, the scrubbing and airing out of the palace began. The waste from the king's non-flushing lavatories was held in underground chambers when the court was in residence. But after the court left, the king gong scourers, tasked with cleaning the sewers in his palaces near London, went to work. After the court had been here for four weeks, the brick chambers would fill head high. Simon Thurley, curator of historic royal palaces, told the Independent, it was the gong scourers who had to clean them when the court had left. What a title. I'm a gong scourer. Of course, filthiness in overcrowded royal establishments was not just a problem at the English court. When the future Catherine the Great arrived in Russia from her family's relatively clean German court, she was shocked by what she found. It's not rare to see coming from an immense courtyard full of mire and filth that belongs to a hovel of rotten wood, she wrote. A lady covered in jewels and superbly dressed in a magnificent carriage pulled by six old nags with badly combed valets. The Western European belief that baths were unhealthy did not help matters either. Although neat freak Henry VIII bathed often and changed his undershirts daily, he was a royal rarity. Louis XIV is rumored to have bathed twice in his life, as did Queen Isabella of Castile, Herman says. Marie Antoinette bathed once a month. The 17th century British king, James I, was said to never bathe, causing the rooms he frequented to be filled with lice. It was the son king himself, Louis XIV, whose choice to no longer travel from court to court would lead to a particularly putrid living situation. In 1682, in an effort to seal his authority and subjugate his nobles, Louis XIV moved his court permanently to the gilded mega-palace at Versailles. At times, over 10,000 royals, aristocrats, government officials, and military officers lived in Versailles and its surrounding lodgings. Despite its reputation for magnificence, life at Versailles for both royals and servants was no cleaner than the slum-like conditions in many European cities at the time. Women pulled up their skirts, 
up to P where they stood, while some men urinated off the balustrade in the middle of the royal chapel. According to historian Tony Spawforth, author of Versailles, a biography of a palace, Marie Antoinette was once hit by human waste being thrown out the window as she walked through an interior courtyard. The heavily trafficked latrines often leaked into the bedrooms below them, while blockages and corrosion in the palace's iron and lead pipes were known to occasionally poison everything in Marie Antoinette's kitchen. Not even the rooms of the royal children were safe, writes Spallforth. An occasional court exodus could have reduced the wear and tear on Versailles, perhaps leading to fewer unpleasant structural failures. This unsanitary way of living no doubt led to countless deaths throughout royal European households. It was not until the 19th century that standards of cleanliness and technological developments improved life for many people, including members of royal courts. Today, many European royals still move from residence to residence, but for pleasure, not to try to outrun squalor. Well, all I can say is, I hope there really isn't that much of a connection or a correlation between the filth of royal courts and eavesdropping. And now we also have on top of the dirty business of eavesdropping from the New Yorker, eavesdropping through a pandemic notes on a year and a half of overhearing what's overlooked by Sarah Larson in June of 2021. After the CDC relaxed its guidelines for the vaccinated, the city seemed to light up with energy and chatter. There are two kinds of overheard conversations, the kind you try to avoid and the kind that inspire eavesdropping. I've been tracking that second species all my life. I still remember good lines from Paris in 2019. I don't care what his blood test says. He's my son. In Albuquerque in 1992. So the mayor goes, how was I supposed to know he was a convicted felon? Don't all hot dog vendors look like convicted felons? But a few places can match the overheard conversations of New York, which before the pandemic had me eavesdropping as assiduously as Harriet the Spy at the luncheonette. East Village, 2009. Most ophthalmologists are schnooks. 7th Street, 2014. He has the passion for pizza, and I'm not going to argue with it. Smoker outside of a downtown bar in 2015. Nobody can ever Google me because there's a million hits for the political prisoner with my name. The best lines provide several little thrills at once. A sketch of character, a hint of story, the joy of feeling like you understand the rest. Last spring, eavesdropping, like everything else, changed. I associate that change with a line I overheard from my sofa. Last March, on that ominous post-awareness, pre-lockdown, St. Patrick's Day weekend, a raucous, fiddling while Rome burns gathering could be heard by those of us cowering indoors. The voice of a neighbor in a high window rang out in the chaos. Why are you idiots partying? He yelled. There's coronavirus everywhere. The hubbub seemed to dull a bit and then carried on. But the yeller had provided a strange comfort. The cautious weren't alone. When the quarantine began, I remained in the East Village. 
experimenting with fire escape home office action and taking daily walks around Tompkins Square Park. Outside, it was hard to hear people. Masks muffled conversation, and we were kept far apart. But at home, eavesdropping was unavoidable. I heard noisy arguments between couples, snippets of dialogue, phone calls conducted in hallways. During the 7 o'clock shout era, one of my favorite neighbors, a four-year-old who lives downstairs, took the conceit further, hollering out the window when he saw an opportunity to chat. In late May, after the murder of George Floyd, a new era of outdoor community emerged. Suddenly, people were in the streets, masked but making noise. At a protest in Union Square, I found myself kneeling and chanting alongside others doing the same with our fists in the air. But I also found myself eavesdropping. I spotted some wary-looking police officers talking to each other on the periphery and, curious, wandered with an earshot. First cop, white, female, agitated. They want our heads on, like sticks. They are defunding us. Second cop, black, female, pausing, then smiling a little. Change is coming. Eventually, I could overhear the pandemic changing, too. After COVID rates in New York improved, people started to move into apartments that had emptied out. What a thrill, then, to return to the other kind of eavesdropping, lighthearted and on the town. After the CDC relaxed its guidelines for the vaccinated, the city seemed to light up with energy and conversation. The other evening, scurrying down my street at the going out hour, I passed two people on their phones who seemed to be narrating the cultural moment. Bro, it was good, a guy with a man once said. A good mix of chillin', partyin'. Nearby, a dressed-up young woman strode along, saying, It's summer. People haven't been out of their house in a year and a half. It was one thing to talk to friends about their teens' high school experiences at a dinner party in Riverdale, and another thing entirely to overhear some actual high schoolers, shirtless, agro boys, at the Metro North Station that night. So, are you meeting with them to talk about your cheating, one said. They're like, this is not academic integrity, another replied. Should I say the same shit I said for my English? On the Met Museum's roof, I overheard people admiring the views, pointing, white-haired woman. Is that the Ghostbusters building? And the art, little girl in cat's eye sunglasses. You're crazy, big bird. He changed his colors. For eavesdropping veterans, there are new frontiers to explore. On Little Island, the whimsical park now hovering over the Hudson, New Yorkers were recently frolicking like mad. Joie de vivre could be heard all over its winding ramps and tulip-shaped feats of engineering. People lounged in the bright green grass, doing headstands for fun or calling out to a hot dad playing catch with his son. Is that like an Aussie rules ball? No response. Embarrassed shrug. I made my way around, admiring the view and collecting intelligence. Fashionable young women laughing. I'm the DJ. No, I'm the DJ. Fast-talking man drinking iced coffee. He gets his Sunday scaries, like, on Saturdays? But he, like, loves high-baller status. Man in Hawaiian shirt looking at the Hudson River sunset. She was like, that's really pretty. But it's New Jersey.
Since moving to New York 21 years ago, I've often thought of two things. The great Dinosaur Jr. album, You're Living All Over Me, whose title says it all, and the David Foster Wallace essay, E Unibus Plurum, about sensitive observant types, fiction writers mostly, who tend to be oglers and thus may seem creepy. The lonely, like the fictive, love one-way watching, Wallace writes. They don't want to hear the psychic costs of engaging with other humans, but they also crave company. So some are soothed by TV. It felt like things had come full circle when eavesdropping returned to Tompkins Square Park. My neighbors and I had been there all year, ogling or ignoring one another. Now I could hear them again. And people were saying all kinds of funny shit. As a leathery character in a skirt bragged about fist fighting, a woman on the bench next to mine lit a cigarette and said to her friend, It's very sad. Apparently no other hedge fund wanted to buy them. On my other side, a young woman holding a tote bag was saying, I was at one point in a psychotic hardcore band. It's not even that I was so devoted to hardcore as a genre. I moved closer, straining to hear. I guess all my friends have just become extremely famous or famous in a weird tertiary way, she went on. By the basketball court, young mothers with babies and strollers played a radio, had a picnic, and observed a nerdy little fellow with a fanny pack attempting feats of yoga. At one point, he did a handstand. Yo, one more time, one of the mothers called out, and he did another. Work, work, yay, the moms yelled. You don't want to befriend all these people, but you're glad to have them around. Slowly, we are reuniting not just with loved ones, but with everybody. The people we don't know and may never know, but have been missing just the same. These thinner threads of contact, though they form and fray in an instant, create our sense of being both of and apart from a place. They also help put our own lives in perspective, which is especially welcome after a year when perspective has been hard to come by. Years ago, near Port Authority, I saw a woman get off a bus, look around, and exclaim, So this is New York City! It was funny to me then, like the beginning of a musical, but lately I keep thinking of her, and I hear what she's saying. And now to a post from LinkedIn. Eavesdropping, corporate surveillance, employee monitoring. Your boss may spy on you. Forever. By Kelly Gwen. Editor at LinkedIn News. When workers retreated to their home offices at the onset of the pandemic, companies swiftly embraced surveillance software to keep tabs on employees. Now, 18 months later, the number of large employers using such tools has doubled to 60% per the Washington Post, and monitoring software is expected to get even smarter. Companies are tracking keystrokes, face scanning workers, or even listening to audio outside of meetings, with some arguing remote work surveillance has gone too far. Well, I must say, after working for a major media company, and knowing some of the Infotech security people, they have been doing this for a long time. And not just highly privileged confidential exchanges at that. Now to the Washington Post article referred to by the Post on LinkedIn. When Kerry Krutchik 
an attorney for 34 years, was hired this spring for one of the legal field's fastest-growing jobs, she expected to review case files at a pandemic-safe distance from the comfort of her Ohio home. Then she received a laptop in the mail with her instructions. To get paid, she'd have to comply with a company-mandated facial recognition system for every minute of her contract. If she looked away for too many seconds or shifted in her chair, she'd have to scan her face back in from three separate angles, a process she ended up doing several times a day. For Krutchik, the laptop's unblinking little camera light quickly became a nightmare and a reminder of what her new workday might look like even after the pandemic fades. After two weeks, she ended her contract and pledged never to consent to that kind of monitoring again. It's just this constant, unnecessary, nerve-wracking stress. You're trying to concentrate, and in the back of your mind, you know you're on camera the entire time, she said. While you're reviewing a document, you don't know who is reviewing you. The spread of the Delta variant has kept many of America's office employees working from home and fueled a rise in surveillance technologies by employers in finance, law, technology, and other industries, eager to keep tabs on their remote workforce. The facial recognition monitoring Kruchik experienced offers one of the stranger examples of America's massive work-from-home experiment because it relies on a glitchy and to some quite creepy camera system built to ensure workers don't lose focus or break the rules. The adoption of the technology coincides with an increase in companies' use of more traditional monitoring software, which can track an employee's computer keystrokes, take screenshots, and in some cases record audio or video while they are working from home. Sometimes this is done without their knowledge, which means companies have the potential to gain access to employees' private details like banking or health information. Workers have little power to control how and when they are being monitored especially if they are using work-issued devices. Experts advise workers to assume they are being monitored if they are in the office or using company equipment and recommend they read the fine print when it comes to employee contracts. Market research firm Gartner says companies use more surveillance tools during the coronavirus pandemic to keep tabs on employees and monitor work productivity. The number of large employers using tools to track their workers doubled since the beginning of the pandemic to 60%. That number is expected to rise to 70% within the next three years, says Brian Krupp, chief of human resources research at Gartner. And the software is expected to become even more sophisticated, telling employers how to turn the data they collect into actionable measures to drive the business. Soon, it might do things like tell managers how employees work together via Zoom, understand who the main contributors are, and how specific patterns may lead to specific results. That's going to be the evolution of the monitoring, Krupp said. Companies say the tracking offers a critical way to ensure their employees are staying productive and telling the truth about how much they work when their bosses are many miles away. Some employers have voiced concerns that, Without the monitoring, their workers might cut corners or pursue multiple jobs simultaneously, depriving them of the focus and labor they need to stay competitive in the remote work era. Brad Edward, CEO of Speckless Cleaning in Arlington, Virginia, said he has been using monitoring software from Hubstaff at his company for about five years. The reason? 
he needs a reliable time tracking system for his local and remote office workers who help with operations. But Specklist is not interested in checking on exactly what employees are doing throughout the day because Edward believes privacy is an important part of the employer-employee relationship. Ultimately, as an employer, your goal is to foster a culture of collaboration and mutual trust, he said. These tools can either work with you or against you, depending on how you use them. Still, many workers say they are increasingly worried about the level of surveillance. David, who spoke on the condition that his last name remain anonymous, was working as a customer service agent for a financial tech company in Utah when the pandemic started and he was sent to work from home. Last fall, after his company switched the software it asked employees to use on their work-based computers, he was randomly clicking around the system trying to figure out how to get where he needed to be. Suddenly, his boss started speaking to him through his headset, instructing him on how to log in. David said he couldn't recall exactly what software the company used, but he was surprised to find that his boss could see what he was doing, a seemingly new capability at the company. I was upstairs with my boys and I get a text from my husband David that said, if you come down here, don't say anything and let me know because we're being listened to, said David's wife, Rebecca. When David brought up the issue at a company meeting, he found out the company could listen to his audio at any time, not just during calls that are often monitored for quality purposes. But now David was at home with his wife and children. The situation had changed, but the monitoring had not adapted to the privacy he expected while working from home. I felt paralyzed, David said. Like I couldn't say anything without potential repercussions. Within a month of the discovery, David quit his job. Ashley, who spoke on the condition of being identified only by her first name to avoid employment repercussion, said the banking startup she was working for in New York implemented surveillance software about 10 days after the company sent employees to work from home last year. The company asked them to download Hubstaff, a software program that tracks productivity in part by recording keystrokes and taking screenshots on their personal computers. The request was out of the question for Ashley, who was furloughed for refusing to download the software before getting a new job altogether. I have so much information on my computer. My banking information, my passwords, my email has that stuff from my doctors, she said. I just wouldn't want my employers to have access to this. While she tried to take up the issue with human resources, she saw a change in how her colleagues worked. The company expected employees to have an 85% or higher activity level, which is calculated based on keystrokes and mouse movement. Anyone who doesn't meet expectations was docked pay. To avoid that, Ashley said her co-workers began sending each other more messages to meet their keystrokes rather than lose time thinking through a complex problem. People just stopped caring about the job, she said. The tension between employees and employers around the level of monitoring comes down to trust and transparency, experts say. If employees aren't given full details of when and how they're monitored, and if they don't feel trusted at work, they're more likely to refuse monitoring of any kind regardless of the purpose. Employers have to be upfront and honest about the extent of the monitoring, said John Verdi, Vice President of Policy at Data Privacy Focus Think Tank Future of Privacy Forum, which is funded by big tech companies including Facebook and Google. 
and employees have to be upfront and honest about what they view is their obligation in their jobs. Attorneys required to use the new face scanning software while working from home said they understood the need for security because reviewing sensitive documents is part of the job. But many felt the remote work surveillance had gone too far. The facial recognition systems, they said, felt intrusive, dysfunctional, or annoying, booting them out of their work software if they shifted in their seat, rested their eyes, adjusted their glasses, wore a headband or a necklace, went to the bathroom, or had a child walk through the room. Even more problematically, some facial recognition systems have been shown in research to perform worse with people of color because the algorithms are less accurate at identifying people with darker skin tones. That leaves many attorneys fearful that they could be penalized due to the color of their skin. Three attorneys, all of whom are black, said they'd routinely struggled to be recognized by the face scanning systems in a way that their lighter skinned colleagues did not. Several couldn't help but note the irony that their careers in consumer privacy and employment law had led them to a role they felt pushed the boundaries on both. The true currency an attorney has is trust, and the technology they're using to monitor what attorneys are doing puts that trust into question, said Gerald Edwards, a New York City attorney practicing since 1994. Are you even trusting me at all, that you have to watch me and monitor me like a four-year-old? Experts say monitoring often doesn't accomplish management's goals unless leaders set clear-cut, realistic objectives customized to each team and its needs. But the pandemic triggered panic among many companies that suddenly had to allow their employees to work from home for the first time. It seems like a lot of people confuse monitoring with management, said Allison Green, work advice columnist, who runs the Ask a Manager website and received numerous complaints about employee surveillance during the pandemic. You don't always need this level of micromanaging, Laszlo Bach, CEO and co-founder of human resource software service, Humu, and former Google executive, said the pandemic had created a sudden instinct in leaders to increase the level of control as workers went remote. The paradox is every manager is also an employee and they have a manager, he said. If you ask managers what they want from their manager, it's to stay out of their way. Legally, employers usually have the upper hand when it comes to monitoring, said Marta Manis, an attorney at San Diego-based Marble Law Firm. Often, employees are unaware that the policies they sign upon their hiring include terms that cover work surveillance, such as monitoring through laptop cameras or computer software. Manis said employees should be wary and ask for specifics about any monitoring policy as well as who will have access to that data. But if workers hope to sue their employers for invasion of privacy, they have the burden to prove damages. If it's a company device, you have zero expectation of privacy, she said. If it's a personal device, as long as there are clear policies in place in favor of monitoring for work purposes, the law is going to permit it. Employee monitoring software provider Terramind says its number of customers has increased by three to four times during the pandemic. And many small and mid-sized employers who were on the fence about purchasing the software at the beginning of the pandemic are now making the purchase as they move to permanent remote work options. Terramind has two versions of monitoring software, one in which employees 
know they're being monitored and can switch on or off, and one where employees have control of the monitoring. Eli Sutton, Terramine's Vice President of Operations, said the company advises its clients to tell their employees that they're using the software as well as explain the productivity goals. The knowledge alone, on average, translates into a 30% spike in productivity versus secretly monitoring employees, Sutton said. The reason is because employees know what specific goals they have to reach and that they're being monitored for those goals, he said. Hubstaff said it logged a record month in March 2020, and since the beginning of the pandemic, customers have increased by 40%. Currently, more than 70,000 companies and organizations use Hubstaff, but Hubstaff said most employers want their employees to understand how the software works and what's being tracked. As for Kruchik, the 34-year attorney, the feeling of distrust stayed with her. Though she is committed to never taking a job that required her to use facial recognition software again, she worries that her options could be limited as companies' high expectations for employee monitoring become more mainstream. The company thinks it's an added layer of protection of them, but for the employee, it's just an added layer of stress, she said. You're on your guard all day. You feel like your privacy invaded, and it's still like they don't trust you. Well, on top of signing your life away to create an account on a social media platform, any social media platform, signing up for any one of hundreds, thousands of platforms to shop, apply for jobs, etc., which have been hacked and the apocryphal, anecdotal anyway, because I swear it has happened to me on too many occasions to enumerate. Home assistants, i.e. Amazon Echo, Alexa, or Google Home, Assistant, Nest, Hub, all seem to listen to my conversations and I suddenly get inline advertisements on social media that I never searched for before and home video cameras for surveillance, such as Ring and Wise, which are often connected to law enforcement in various municipalities. Privacy. It's very important, but most of us gave it up a long time ago. It's not even a wash. The privacy ship has sailed and we ain't on it. They, the apocryphal they, get 95% of the benefit while you get 5%. You can post pics of kids or vent your spleen or make a crazy video, and they know everything you do. They, meaning every entity big and powerful enough to capture your activities, your identity, your manner of speech, your interests, purchasing habits, etc., all those things is they. Complaining about the invasion of privacy after you have sold your soul to Satan is laughable. Does anybody know anyone who has ever read all of the fine print on any of the agreements you clicked and signed off on to access a platform where you can post videos of personal experiences? If you want to be a hermit and live in a cabin in the woods, we still have Google Maps. And that's just the public-facing stuff from satellites way up high. Like I said, it's a dirty business, and the metaphor for big tech and government is like Hampton Court or Versailles. We see these gleaming, imposing, formidable structures housing the brain trusts of Leviathan organizations, and now they bring everything from fear and loathing to comfort and enjoyment. But they are very similar, relatively speaking, of course, to the royal courts of the past. 
I am a bit cleaner than those in the royal courts of the past. And as uh, Eugene Weber said, or at least I would like to think so. Thanks for listening. See you next time. And as the kitties say, peace out.